0: Hello, it's Caroline Dooner. I am the host of this podcast that you might accidentally be listening to. It is called the Fuck A Diet Podcast. And today, I don't want to waste too much time like I usually do before getting into the meat of the episode. The meat, so to speak, of this episode is my conversation with Alicia McCullough. Alicia is one of the creators of the Amplify Melanated Voices Challenge that you may have seen on Instagram or participated in on Instagram back in the beginning of June. So that was the first week of June. And Alicia is a trauma-informed eating disorder therapist and writer. She advocates for fat liberation and racial healing. And this particular conversation that I'm sharing with you is about the intersection between racism, trauma, and eating disorders. So without further ado, I'm gonna play that conversation for you and then I will be back at the end of this episode after the conversation, enjoy.
1: So I'm a licensed mental health um, counselor. Um, I identify as a therapist just because that's the most inclusive term for people who are counselors, psychologists, and social workers. Um, But I'm a mental health therapist, and basically the work that I do is seeing individuals and couples. I also have led group therapy and done things around body image and eating disorders work in group therapy. Um, Outside of more of the clinical capacity, I also do activism work, so I'm really big um, into social media and talking about anti-racism and racial justice and racial healing. Um, I've also developed um, a healing network specifically for BIPOC folks who are looking for a space to... I feel safe and heal um, as well as I'm a writer. And so I published a poetry book about three years ago, and then I'm constantly just writing things here and there, um, whatever kind of comes to mind for me. So that's kind of the gist of some of the things that I do.
0: And everybody should, if you're not already following her, at Black and Embodied. That is, we'll, we'll we'll do it again. We'll plug it at the end. But she's a wonderful follow, and uh, obviously, I hope that everybody goes over and follows and learns from you and buys your book. Um, how did you get into the work that you do? Did you always know you? Did you always know that you wanted to be a therapist? Well,
1: I wouldn't say I always knew. Um, what kind of led me into the therapy world was actually my love for reading and writing. And so um, I would actually like hang out at libraries. Like that was the fun thing to do um, growing up. And so I would hang out at libraries, read books all day long. And I actually came across a book probably when I was in the eighth or ninth grade um, called Um. I think it was called The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, which was a super like in-depth book for eighth or ninth graders. Yeah, really. yeah. <laughs> um, and it was written by this German psychologist, Eric Fromm. And I just remember like reading the book and, or reading an excerpt from the book and thinking, man, I really wish I could like understand what he's saying. Like there was a part of me, like I could understand other books, but I kept hitting this like wall when it came to his work. And so it just made me more intrigued, you know, it felt challenging. And so I'm like, okay, well, if this is psychology, I definitely want to be a psychologist. Um, And so um, that's what really got me into kind of seeking out the therapy field. And also, of course, just kind of, you know, what people might normally say is I just wanted to help people. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really good at like talking to my friends and helping them through their issues. And so, um, you know, here I am this first generation college student, I go off to college and um, I studied psychology, and then when it came time for my graduate degree, I decided to go the counseling route because I knew I wanted to sit face-to-face with people and talk about the um, individual problems that they were facing in their life. Um, I just didn't know um, all the ins and outs of what, I was, of what I was cut out or what I was getting from it, but um, I definitely enjoy it, and that's what led me to the therapy field um, in itself.
0: Wow, and you know, this is really embarrassing to say, but I have a friend who's a therapist, and the other day I was like, wait, 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 wait what, what is the difference between a psychologist and a therapist? And she was like, well, you know, therapists work, definitely work one-on-one with people actually like clinically work, Mm -hmm. you know, in therapy sessions and psychologists can do lots of things and they can, you know, write, you know, study or, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Research and go through theory and stuff like that. I actually never knew that. Which
1: yeah. No, no, not at all. I think a lot of people don't know. Like, I didn't even know until i um, you know, seeking out a graduate program that, you know, essentially, you're right, like all of the fields technically do the same things. We just come from different historical backgrounds, like mm. around our training. Um, but I've actually, since being out of graduate school, worked with both psychologists and social workers um, and find that our disciplines are have a lot of overlap, actually. Um, but again, it's kind of that historical framework there that kind of sets them apart. Right,
0: uh, that, that's very interesting actually. So, you are trauma informed. You look at things from the perspective of trauma, which I personally think is so interesting and important. And I, I, I feel like not everybody has an understanding of what trauma is and why it's such an important piece of the work. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Can you talk about trauma? Talk about what it even is in the first place? Yeah. And
1: so um, for me, you know, defining trauma as a deep distressing or disturbing experience. Um, And so when I think about that, I think about, you know, what kind of even led me into incorporating that into the eating disorders and body liberation work Mm -hmm. is that a lot of times those disturbing experiences and um, that distress gets stored in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, even throughout my, you know, introduction into the eating disorders and therapy field, I started thinking about my own experience of trauma and my own experience in my body, just being, you know, a black woman living in the South and just the impact that's had not only on me, but on my family as well. And so that's what kind of led me to incorporate that lens on top of the eating disorders and body justice work, um, as well as kind of thinking a little bit about the effects of like post-traumatic um, stress disorder and post-traumatic slave syndrome, yes. and then daily yeah. racial trauma, you know. Um, some of those things um, came up for me in thinking about, wow, like when we think about communities, especially marginalized communities, there's so many other layers and overlaps that influence the way we show up in our bodies, um, and of course, you know, oh, influence the way we interact with food, you know, in, yes. our, in our bodies and the way we navigate this world.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, when you said the daily racial trauma, that is something that I feel like, I feel like we're, you know, the conversation is definitely happening now on a bigger scale. Thank God. Yes. These smaller moments that are still traumatizing. um, Can you talk about how that can manifest or what kind of things, what that could be, how small that could be and how that could actually affect you long-term? Yeah, I'll even, you know, kind of pull the lens back
1: and just think about, um, you know, overall, just the systematic trauma, you know, of racial trauma and how these systems were built, you know, with people like me not in mind. And so because of that, you know, trying to navigate a system that was never built for you is challenging and was set up not to be for you is very challenging. And so I think about that being kind of the first, I think about institutional racism, thinking about how a lot of our institutions, our universities, you know, are developed, again, another way of push out, another way of not making us feel included um, in a lot of ways. And so even me navigating being a first-generation college student, that was an identity on top of all the others that I also had to to navigate just being in an institution. Um, Of course, there's the personal racism that, you know, we experience day-to-day, you know, the microaggressions, even being... Um, you know, having your hair touched and being petted as if you're like an animal in a zoo, that's dehumanizing. Um, but I think it just happens so often because people are very curious and they want to know. And at the same time, although the intention is, I just want to know and I'm curious, I think the impact can be, wow, if you think I'm an animal or you de- are dehumanizing me. And, you know, the impact of that happening often, you know, does does contribute to that trauma. And it's kind of like the little cuts that lead up to the big wound, you know. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so that and then I also think kind of the last one being internalized trauma. So the trauma that, you know, you kind of internalize from the world, you know, when you're constantly hearing, you know, that you don't belong, or you're constantly pushed out and made to feel different. That's um, some messages that you might even start to internalize, you know, some anti blackness, or even some racism that you might internalize and put that on yourself. So it's all of these kind of things that you're walking around with all day long. And they're certainly having an impact on your body.
0: Yes. And I think that's kind of the difference with trauma, right? It's like, it's affecting your body. It's like stored as opposed to just the mental dialogue, right there. It's actually, and they're connected, but it's a lot harder to heal the layers of trauma in the body. Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, I know there's a book out called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel Van um, Denkolt, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm saying that right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. And so that book really goes into depth about how although we might not cognitively remember all of the things that we've been through, the trauma that we've been through, it does get passed on biologically, as well as it's stored in our bodies. And so our bodies are responding in that fight, fight or freeze Um, state, you know, in response to things we might not even know or remember. And so that's why I also kind of add on the other layer of um, thinking about how post-traumatic slave syndrome is passed down, thinking about how um, post-traumatic stress syndrome is passed down and all of the effects of those um, diagnoses as well, um, and how those show up in our bodies too.
0: Yes, the ancestral piece. We can't forget that. You can't just snap your fingers and be like, well, I haven't experienced it. It's still it's still there in our bodies and it's also there systemically, as you said. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you saying, I was just so, so eloquent. You said these systems that were built with me, not in mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Ugh. And that's, I mean, I'm, I am so glad that the, I, I really do feel like the conversation is starting to re like people are being forced to have the conversation where they were just able to ignore it before. Obviously I'm talking about white people. Yeah. Able to ignore it before, but, um, but it's just so layered and it goes so deep.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I would say too, I think that a lot of times, you know, when people think about racism, they think about the covert, you know, they think about the person who's storming down the streets with the Confederate flag or the person who is, you know, beating someone over the head or whatever, or calling them a derogatory term. Um, I think it's harder for people to see the, you know, more overt forms of oppression or racism that show up in their daily lives. And, you know, ultimately when you benefit from the system, it's gonna show up. I think it just takes the person Be willing to look inward and say, you know, in what ways does this show up? Not does it, but in what ways is it showing up, and how is it affecting and impacting my relationship with people who don't look like me? I think that's important.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Can we talk about also how eating disorders fit into this entire picture? Because I know eating racism is associated with trauma. Trauma is associated with eating disorders. And I want to hear your perspective on this. I want to hear your experience with this, both both firsthand and then also as a practitioner.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, And so when I think about eating disorders, you know, a lot of times they, like you said, they are based in trauma and they really thrive in shame, isolation, and feeling less than. And so even when we think about, you know, even what we've talked about so far with, you know, feeling shame from maybe some of the experiences you had, maybe not feeling like you fit into a space and internalizing the shame around that, even being told that your body is not good, you know, and the shame that comes with that, being, you know, different in a space causes you to be isolated. And so feeling, you know, like you don't fit in an institution or a system or you know, a certain group causes you to feel more isolated. And then, of course, feeling less than when this, when our world is constantly telling you, like, you're not enough, or your people are not, you know, this or that, or they're not smart or intelligent, then you, you know, those messages have an impact. Although you might be fighting and not agreeing with those, they're still having an impact pack and making you maybe feel a little less than. And so even those pieces Um, really being the foundation of what can lead um, to that trauma and ultimately um, keep that eating disorder thriving, um, I think is really important to highlight. And then even in thinking about my own experience as someone who had internalized a lot of that and have actively been unpacking and dismantling a lot of those messages. You know, I remember, um, you know, being young and the first time I knew that I was different was when I um, went to a public school, I went to a private um, uh, religious school for uh, until like third grade and then I I'm transferred to a public school and I remember just being in class with people who look different than me and noticing you know even as a third grader how, how I was treated differently by my teachers you know noticing how I was treated differently by my peers having comments made about like my hair texture or my hair or even my skin color um those type of things starting young and then over time, like really internalizing that and saying, "Wow, like I really don't fit," and especially being in the South, I think that was really hard um, to not be able to fit and saying, "Okay, well, if I can't change my skin, I can't change my hair. You know, I can't change, you know, a lot of the things that are innate to me. You know, having that myth that, well, maybe I can change my body." And I will mm-hmm. say, around my teenage years, um, there was a lot of that restrictive eating. There were some um, problematic um, relationships with exercise and my body. And so a lot of those things, because of my experiences, I felt like I could control that. You know, if, if maybe I can just get my body to look you know, like the like the ideal, then I'll fit in, you know? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I definitely think, you know, that definitely has an impact, that trauma of just, you know, being excluded. Again, like we talked about with the, the racism and then ultimately feeling like, you know, you deserve less, you know, because of the, re- the treatment that you've received or even not seeing yourself represented Um, And, of course, looking everywhere you look validates that, like the thin ideal, you know, the the magazines, right, that we see in Walmart or whatever, um, or on TV when you don't see yourself represented. I think that all, you know, contributes and, and oftentimes I think people don't look at the trauma. And they want to just say, oh, be positive or, you know, change the, change your relationship with your body and food. But I think that's just putting a
0: Band-Aid on it when we don't really look at the trauma. I totally agree. That's the toxic positivity, right? Like yes. just say your mantras and love yourself and everything's going to be okay. It's all, you have ultimate control over how you feel. Right. it's like, okay, there are so many pieces you're not looking at here. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're not looking at the way that I'm being treated every day. You're not looking at the inherited ancestral slave trauma. Right. You're not looking at all of the things that I'm holding inside and not feeling.
1: Right, right. And, you know, I think, um, you know, I talk about a lot too, like, you know, we hear in the community often that, oh, it's just about, you know, accepting yourself, you know, and I, I feel like I can accept myself all day. But I think it's different when I walk into the world, and in my black skin, and it says something different, I think I might be able to accept that behind closed doors, but in the world, um, when that's not mirrored back and appreciate it, I think that's where the um conflict comes in in that whole like you said that toxic positivity um, even some of the body positivity messages that we might hear
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and then the other thing is that if you're constantly being re-traumatized and you don't have a safe place and a safe space to truly do the healing work it's so difficult and maybe even impossible right yes Yes, yes. Um,
1: Even as we think about trauma, a lot of times when we're in a traumatic state um, and we're responding out of our trauma, our cognitive brain is not even able to like think about what's next, right? Or think about what we might need to do that's best for us. And so a lot of times the response that's activated is that fight, fight, or freeze. And so when you're constantly in in activation mode, um, it causes you to be hyper vigilant. It causes you to um, fear the world around you. It can cause a lot of You know, just distrust around things around you as well, and so when you're constantly in that state and your body is never in like a restful place, that can be a lot to internalize. Your cortisol levels, that stress response is heightened. Um, You know, you're just feeling
0: maybe unstable a lot of the times, um, or or really not grounded. Right. Right. And then that also has a long-term impact on our health. Right. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I practice a lot with my clients
1: um, mindfulness breathing, because I think, and I tell them this, our experiences get stored in our bodies, So we have to kind of break that up and let it kind of flow out a little bit. So I try to practice that mindfulness breathing so that they can, one, be more in tune in the moment, as well as with their bodies, but also, you know, do something liberatory by Um, taking that breath and resting and not feeling like they just have to hold it all in and it's just stored there and obviously having an impact on their body. Like you said, like their health in a lot of ways too.
0: I love that image of using the breath to break it up. Mm -hmm. I love that because I, you know, in my book, I talk in the emotional part, I talk about how breathing helps you feel like it helps to bring you into your body. So you can actually process it but my god I love that image of just of the breath being able to kind of go in and like break up the hard stuck pain really honestly like the pain and the stress that we I think we're petrified to feel it because it's so overwhelming
1: yeah yeah and and like you said it just gets stuck you know um like even thinking about sometimes when we take in that deep breath, we never really exhale, you know? Um, and so it's just sitting there and, and we're never letting it go. We're never releasing. And I think release is a part of that liberation, much like rest, much like, you know, I'm um, going against things that are a part of these systems that hold us down. I think all of those things are liberatory. And so I'm always telling my clients, do the thing that you feel like your body needs but first you have to listen to know what it needs.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. I really love that. We have such a poor cultural understanding of eating disorders in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tend to think of, well, first of all, from my perspective, we tend to think that dieting is healthy living instead of actually often a manifestation of disordered eating. But we right. also tend to think that eating disorders are this like thin white woman problem. Right. The understanding that, There's a huge prevalence of eating disorders in Black women and other people of color. Um, Can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, just the fact that that goes sort of underrepresented, and underdiagnosed is kind of a manifestation of medical racism.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I even think about, you know, where it started and what purpose it served. And so even when I think back to, you know, how we even got these categories, I think about race. I can't think of the actual philosopher who came up with these categorizations of race and um, actually divided race not only by, you know, skin color um, but, and by group, but also by phenotypical differences such as hair, lips, nose, eyes, And so even starting there and thinking about from the beginning, you know, there was there were these distinctions that were created um, to keep us separate. Right. To keep some people on the bottom end of the totem pole and some people on the higher end. And that's kind of the good part. That's the ideal. And everybody at the bottom and throughout that totem pole needs to strive for the top. You know, Um, I think that that's the first part. And I know in Sabrina String's book, Fearing the Black Body, she kind of outlines that a lot more clearer and talks a little bit about where that started. And so I think about that and how, you know, even that totem pole was created to distance, you know, mostly white women and white people kind of created to distance um, themselves as pure and divine um, in, in comparison to like black bodies that they kind of deemed to be inhumane or promiscuous um, during that time. And so I think that that would be kind of maybe, you know, even thinking about that piece of how the categories were even developed and and how they were and how that even determined who gets representation who um is deemed worthy enough for care who um do we even look at we think about like who should get treatment i think that's where it all started you know with that totem pole of worth yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense Yeah. And, you know, even when you were saying, like, you know, our understanding of it, I think, you know, even now, our understanding of eating disorders, that from my understanding, it seems like that there's still a lot of development that's necessary to even understand just eating disorders in general, that there's still a lot out there that we just don't know, you know. And so even in thinking about that, you know, I think well, first, maybe we should start with the groups that are at, that we don't see. You know, the numbers of black and brown folks and marginalized folks who experience eating disorders are at a higher rate, um, but we're not looking at that. And so I think anytime we look at a treatment modality or a plan or um, whatever, and we don't look at the people that it's affecting more or the people that um, are not represented, that's the place where we should probably turn our attention and think more about of, okay, you know, we're just looking at this one subset, but what about everybody else outside of that? You know, um, what about the people who have the higher rates? Let's, let's look in that area and see how we can best support um, those groups of people um, as well. So I think that would be, you know, even in thinking about that, that would be a place to start.
0: Even, even just the, misunderstood, just basically medical fat phobia. It yeah, leaves so many people behind. And obviously, well, also that's, a, that's all tied in with racism because of the thin white ideal that we think of as health, you know? Yes. And yes. without an understanding that people in fat bodies can be literally starving, we, mm-hmm. we just don't happen. We just don't know that. We just... And, we, and when we're faced with it, we there's so much cognitive dissonance that we can't see it. Yes. It's so frustrating.
1: Yes, yes, it does. It, it's so sad the amount of people that are left out, you know, in the conversation and in a lot of ways intentionally, like when we talked about the medical field, um, even thinking and going back to those categories, if, you know, there's a certain body type that's associated with a race or a phenotype um, that's deemed as, you know, Um, Inhumane and also gets labels of being like lazy or, um, you know, things like that. When they come in to get treatment at a medical center, the medical provider is going to be looking through the lens of that stereotype and say, oh, well, you know, this fat black woman that's in here right now doesn't, you know, need my support. She's just lazy. You know, if I just put her on this diet plan, she'll be great. Meanwhile, this woman could be coming in because, you know, she has cancer or, you know, she's having an issue with, something else not related to that. But of course that will be the first thing that they'll go to because of those stereotypes that were planted into these systems and determine like the lens that the, you know, provider is looking through the client um, through when they come in for treatment. And so even when I think about the medical system, I'm like that system needs a lot of work and um, certainly there's got to be a lot of ideals and messaging and, um, you know, just overall stereotypes that need to be dismantled in that, in that whole field.
0: Yes. Yes. It's a very weight centric field in the first place. And that definitely, that needs to change. And then hopefully this bigger conversation about medical racism can actually shake things up.
1: Yeah, I know there's a book um, out called Medical Apartheid. And again, I know I'd say a lot of books. I just, I'm a reader. um, But Medical Apartheid talks a little bit about how, like, even the medical field has historically experimented on, you know, BIPOC folks um, for different things. And um, how a lot of, even when we think about, like, the cells of Henrietta Henrietta Lex, who um, was used to treat, um, you know, certain cancer cells and things like that how that was done without her consent. And so even when I think about body, I think about autonomy and my ownership over my body and the fact that her body was used in that way. Um, I think about um, Sarah, um, the woman whose body was put in a museum because of the size of her body. And you know, again, her not really having consent over that or even her family not having consent over her remains after she passed. Um, And so just so many different examples of um, the medical field abusing people of color um, and how a lot of times we don't have consent over our bodies, even the, the disparities right now with COVID, um, and how you know, a lot of Black people and people of color are at higher risk for COVID, as well as not really getting the treatment that we need during this time, because there's this idea of like not believing us or not seeing us as worthy for care and treatment. And so it, I think it's just so layered, even when we talk about body in regard to like eating disorders and body image. But overall, just being able to exist in our bodies freely and have that body liberation.
0: Right. That's actually, I want to talk about body liberation because I've been hearing a lot of talk that I think is so interesting and important about how Hayes health at every size, is actually falling short for a lot of marginalized folks. And it's not inclusive enough. And it's not as helpful as it should
1: be. You know, I think Hayes is a great model in that it provided something different in diet culture. (laughs) So that's always a good thing. (laughs) Definitely better than
0: diet culture. (laughs) Definitely.
1: (laughs) Right. And so I definitely think it was a good model in that way. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it was kind of a saving grace for some people. And so um, oftentimes, again, we see, you know, what works for some people, they'll stop at that extent of how how it works for them or how it makes them um, feel more liberated in their experience. But again, you know, as we said, it still doesn't include everybody, and and so um, when I think about health at every size, even the principles, the principles behind, um, in order to be healthy, you know, here are some of the things that you do. Um, but there are some people, especially people who have, you know, lifelong illness or chronic illness or. You know, terminal illness that can't be healthy, you know, and so if they can't be healthy, what does that mean about them? Are they less worthy? You know, are they still, do they still kind of fall into um, the category that is deserving of treatment, although they may not be ever considered, quote unquote, healthy? You know, so I think those are some of the things that I think about even with that. Um, I know even thinking about intuitive eating, which is a, a great model and definitely, again, an, a, a, an improvement from diet culture. Um, But even thinking about, you know, access and who might have access to eat um, the things that they want, you know, um, the things that, you know, feel good to them and good to their body. Some people, you know, live in areas where they have just the one thing that they don't really like, and that's all they can afford. And that's it, you know. Um, And so even thinking about those things, thinking about haze not being body liberation and in that, It doesn't address, you know, some of the things we talked about of like, what is it like for me to step out in the world, you know, in a black body or in a trans body, you know, um, it doesn't really address some of those things. And so again, I think it's a a wonderful model in that, you know, it steps away from diet culture, but I think some people kind of stopped and said, okay, this is what applies for me. This works. I'm good. And that was the end. And so um, I think we have to move beyond that. And again, I understand everybody won't.
0: So it, yeah, you're so right that it it very much addresses weight stigma and it addresses the trauma from weight stigma that can affect your health. But it it sort of in passing mentions other marginalized identities, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not really talk. It's not really centering and focusing on the issues that other people may be going through. Mm-hmm. And it also, you're so right that when there's an access issue. That is another example of not having a safe environment to heal in. It's It really is impossible to heal your, your food issues or your disordered eating or your difficult relationship with food if you still don't have access to right. the food that you want or need.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think that's, you know, where it needs to be advanced, you know, um, where we have to think about, well, what's next? Maybe it's not, you know, the intuitive eating. Maybe it's something different. And I don't know even what that would look like now, to be quite honest. Um, but I do think that that brainstorming process should begin so that we don't, you know, miss anybody in the process of this whole liberatory movement, as well as in the eating disorders field. We don't want to leave anybody behind.
0: Right. Yeah. That's really, really important. Yeah. Um, can we talk about, you created this, this resource for people to learn, which is, I I really, I benefited from it a lot actually. And it's your, it's your seven, your seven circles of whiteness. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: yeah um and so the seven circles of whiteness i created it as a learning tool um and it really was um from my interactions with certain white people that i've come in contact with personally um and so through those interactions just throughout my life i've kind of i kind of started to notice that there were some similar patterns with similar people and so i started writing some things out just some characteristics and then i was thinking okay these characteristics sound very similar as well. And so if I had like a category or or headline for this specific category, what would that be? And so that's where some of the categories came from, as well as the similar characteristics as well. And really, it was supposed to be, again, a learning tool and an introspecting tool, an introspection tool to say, okay, where am I at? You know, what category or categories do I fall into? And then once I figure that out, what do I want to do with that information? You know, do I want Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, change? Do I want to just sit with it? Um, but I thought it was just so relevant just to put out especially during this time where like you said at the beginning people are a little bit more open to learning um and kind of looking inward and seeing you know what are the areas that I might not like or that I want to work on and so um that's what really encouraged me to put it out um it has been noted as a controversial piece I have got some um feedback both positive and negative on both sides of that um
0: which is okay and so
1: um, yeah. Yeah. Anything
0: that pushes, anything that's like new and pushes the boundaries a little, is unfortunately always going to come with that feedback that's so frustrating. Yeah. To just have to feel. It's like, okay, if you don't like it, you don't need to tell me. You can just. <laughs> Stay out of my DMs,
1: please. Right, right. And I'm actually gonna do a um a web series on it because I did get so many DMs from people kind of wanting more questions. Like they sp- send me like specific questions, like, hey, my husband is this. And so what does that mean? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, so I actually decided to develop this um this training I'm gonna put on in August, where I really break down the circles in depth with people, um, answer some of the questions that are out there, um, and, and allow people to be able to interact and talk about what they're taking away as well as process some of those internal reflection questions as well so that is to you know to come soon I'm I'm super excited about it. I have some um, other clinicians who are um, wanting to help me with it and so it won't just be me as well it'll be a chance so that people can get another perspective um, just to have that co-facilitation throughout that process too
0: well I want to be the lifelong student but <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yes. I'm gonna keep reading it and make sure that I'm I'm not doing all the other things, which I definitely I mean I have done. I mean, I know reading it, I'm like, ooh, I didn't yes. we we need to learn. I mean, we need to know without hearing, without hearing from you and the people that it's affecting, how are we gonna learn, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah. And I appreciate that. I really do, because I think that a lot of times, um, you know, there's this this pressure of perfection. And I think, you know, even within, you know, su- white supremacy, there's this um, feeling of arrival, that arrival mindset that happens. And, I, you know, a part of kind of doing that anti-racism work is really unpacking and dismantling those ideas that you you arrive, you know, at anything really in life right. um, or, you know, Um, that you have to get it perfect and do it right, you know, all the way through, you know, I think that those are just two of the biggest things that I've noticed have come up in the past couple weeks with everything going on. And so um, even if, you know, this tool helps people kind of unpack those things, I think that would be great. You know, just those two things.
0: Yeah. And just the awareness and, you know, I'm, I definitely, even not that long ago, I thought of the term white supremacy as something that was reserved for white hate like hate groups mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. I, I that's what i thought and having it reframed as the system that we live in and the system that was built to benefit white people just like you said yeah, You're, you were living, you are living in a system that was built with you not in mind. It's been so helpful for me to see how white supremacy and fat phobia are so connected and intertwined.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that was the piece that a lot of us got home board with when we were like, whoa, these things are connected. We definitely have to address both of these at the same time. I think before it was kind of like racism had its own little corner, you know, um, you know, white supremacy had its own little corner, you know, um, body justice and food justice had its own corner. But I think the more we kind of talked about it and, you know, see those parallels and see how they actually intersect um, that we're able to combine the two and say, actually, this is intersectional. Um, And we're able to take that intersectional approach when working with people and even thinking about our own experiences of eating disorders or body image concerns and things like that.
0: Alicia, this has been so amazing. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet?
1: Yes. Um, And so um, people can find me on Instagram at Black and Embodied. Um, I'm also currently working on launching a Patreon page where I can post more content as well as kind of um, go a little bit more in depth with some of my posts. Um, So that is to be soon. Um, But yeah, people can find me there. And if there's any um, BIPOC um, folks who are listening that are looking for a support and safe space just to process and just be and exist, Um, I do have the Holistic Black Healing Collective, which you can also find in my link tree located on my Instagram page as well.
0: Are you being able, like, I I just imagined when, you know, when you had that amazing challenge, the Amplify Melanated Voices Challenge that went really, I mean, it seemed to go well. I'm sure it was- overwhelming. And I I've seen on your Instagram that it was frustrating in certain ways as well.
1: Yes. Yes. I, you know, the reason why it was created was actually rooted in the eating disorders field, kind of seeing that people like me, you know, would often get overlooked, um, you know, just professionally. um, my Having people who've been in treatment facilities say like, I don't see myself represented in the treatment facility. Like, although I thought that the experience was great, You know, I was still missing something, you know, having my, my clients, even that i worked with, you know, with body image and eating disorders kind of say this, something doesn't feel right. You know, all of those things just over time, I'm like, something has to change. And there, we can't keep like, you know, pushing people of color to the margins um, while other people are just profiting and and kind of just making it out here off of, you know, whatever. And so
0: like, literally Alicia, I have not, like, I am not an eating disorder professional. I got lucky. I mean, people like it's, you know, it's a little bit of humor, so that doesn't hurt, but like, I look at my Instagram all the time and I'm like, what the fuck? Like I have so many followers and all I want to do is talk about my oily hair and my dog. You know? So it's true. It's real. And I'm seeing it from the flip side being like, thanks for following me guys. Uh, I'm going to refer you to an eating disorder specialist.
1: You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And it's crazy because um, people will often, because I think lived experience is so important. Like I know we didn't get too much into that, but I I think lived experience is very important, but I found that that people are like, well, if you don't have a PhD, then you're not like, relevant you know and so that also really kind of was saddening and hurtful and also just not true and so even wanting to flip the narrative of like let's amplify the melanated voices you know our experiences you know what we just bring in authentically you know all the value we really have and so that's what really started it and I was excited because I had a lot of people who were like black and brown reach out like oh my god this challenge is so great like I've got offers and people are actually like noticing me and things like that Um and then on the other hand like came the influx of like people with somewhat good intentions and some people who were like hey I'm just here to troll you and you know do other things and so it became overwhelming and like even my messages were crazy and still are yeah I <laughs> and bet. yeah yes I bet
0: which is why when I dm'd you I was like I don't even know if she's gonna see this honestly I was like I might have to just like try and find her email and like see if she'll be available in the next couple of months but I had a feeling it was nuts.
1: Yeah, no, it was, and I and I saw your name because I recognize you because um, of your book, and I've recommended your book to a lot of my clients. And so, yeah, I have, so and they have been excited. Um, I have it on my wish list. I'm going to get it, but it's on my wish list now <laughs> to get. Um, but yeah, I've recommended it because um, I have read like a couple excerpts and things like that, and I'm like, this is so relatable. I definitely feel like this is like you know the book for my clients to kind of get out of this diet thinking. And so, um, and I've recommended your podcast too. And so, and people have been like, oh, I love it. So, um, you have yeah, idea.
0: that means so much to me. Thank yeah.
1: You. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And so I saw your name and I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely want to see what she's talking about.
0: (laughs) Yay. It worked out. I'm so glad. (laughs) I have linked to all of that in the show notes of this episode. You can find her on Instagram. You can find her holistic black healing collective, and you can also find the books that she mentioned, like the body keeps the score and medical apartheid. Now I have grand plans during this episode to Continue and to read some of the listener stories that were sent in. But before I do that, I need to take a little break. What's the point? I mean, why do I need to tell you? I could have just paused it and come back, and you would have never even known that I took a break. But instead, I'm telling you for no reason. But what I need to do besides eat lunch is I need to take my dog for a desensitizing car ride so she stops having panic attacks in the car. (sighs) Oh. So I'll be back and it'll be like I never left and I never needed to tell you in the first place, but I don't know. I guess I just want you to know more than you need to know. Bye. I'm back. It's like I was never gone. Okay. This is what I want to do. I want to read to you one of the listener stories that was sent into podcast at carolineduner.com. I ask that anyone who has a story or an experience on the fuck It diet that you think would be helpful or inspiring to the people who are in the beginning of their journey, who are struggling or worrying that the hard part is never going to be over. Your stories really help and I love to read them on the podcast. So if you have one, please send it to podcast at carolineduner.com. And ideally, ideally I ask that you've been doing the fuck a diet for six months, at least to a year. Because it really helps to be able to speak to the different phases of, of the beginning of the journey. All right. I'm going to read this one to you. So she said, uh, I heard on your podcast that you wanted stories from people who've been doing the fuck it diet for a year or so. The fuck it diet definitely has changed my life. So I wanted to share. If you choose to use it, I am. You can use my name, Rachel Bloor from Forest Hills, New York, 34. She said, I hit my quote-unquote diet bottom in December of 2018. I got engaged in November, and even though I considered myself a body-positive feminist who hated capitalism, I found myself rejoining Weight Watchers out of extreme fear of gaining weight for my wedding. I have a long history with Weight Watchers. After quote-unquote recovering from an extremely restrictive eating disorder in college, I put recovering in quotes because I never actually made peace with food. I maintained an all-or-nothing relationship with food and gained a good amount of weight. I eventually joined Weight Watchers and became a quote-unquote weight loss success story. I got to my quote-unquote goal weight and became a quote-unquote lifetime member. An honor Weight Watchers bestows on you if you maintain your goal weight for six weeks. Six weeks, lifetime success in six weeks. And eventually I became an employee and worked as a leader of the meetings. And she's saying WW because that's what they changed it to, but this is Weight Weight Watchers and I haven't changed anything. Weight Watchers was a terrible company to work for. The pay was terrible and all employees must quote unquote weigh in monthly at goal weight to stay in good standing. Let me read that again. The pay was terrible and all employees must weigh in monthly at goal weight to stay in good standing. I eventually quit and disillusioned over the terrible treatment of their mostly female employees, I stopped following the program. Oh, and I was also an alcoholic and a drug addict and a Weight Watchers poster child, lol. That had its own problems as I was drinking thousands of calories every day while terrified of gaining weight, so I obsessively rationed my food, enough so I wouldn't black out too early, but not so much that I'd gain weight. In 2016, I got sober, which was the hardest and best thing I've ever done. And since I wasn't drinking, I started eating again. It was glorious. I ate potato skins, ice cream, anything I wanted. It all didn't matter as long as I wasn't drinking. This peaceful relationship with food Though Weight Watchers points and calorie counts were still in the back of my mind at all times, I always wanted to be quote-unquote good if I was quote-unquote bad the day before. It lasted until I got engaged. I was a feminist and I felt so strongly that no one should have to lose weight for their wedding, but a quiet voice in the back of my head said, but you need to lose weight for your wedding, which I think a lot of us can relate to. I rejoined Weight Watchers giving my hard-earned money to a company that had treated me so terribly. I was disgusted at myself for doing it, but I felt like I had to. Around this time, I saw some women I respected posting about how intuitive eating changed their lives. I Googled it, always curious to know about a new diet and I read the 10 principles and they blew my mind. I didn't know that not dieting was an option. So I bought the intuitive eating book and read it, and I cried at almost every page. The idea of unconditional permission to eat was so foreign and amazing to me, but I was still holding on to the idea that I could lose weight by doing intuitive eating right. And I did the exact same thing back when I read the book intuitive eating. I was 18. This is obviously Caroline talking about her own experience now, my own experience, I did the exact same thing. I thought that if I did intuitive eating right, I would be thin and lose weight. Guess what? It sabotaged me. A friend recommended the Food Psych podcast as a good companion to stop from turning intuitive eating into a diet. So I started listening. A few, and Food Psych is Christy Harrison's podcast. A few episodes in, you were the guest, meaning me. The Fuck a Diet was about to come out, and the episode touched me, so I ran to the bookstore to buy it as soon as it was available. That's so cool. It's so nice. So nice that going on people's podcasts actually works to communicate with the people who should be reading your book. Okay, I proudly posted a picture on Instagram of me with the book saying this is my wedding diet because I didn't want anyone pressuring me to lose weight for my wedding. Reading the fuck it diet was truly transformational. The intuitive eating book was good, but some things weren't so obvious to me. I remember sitting in Madison Square Park reading that, oh, reading in the fuck diet that hunger is not a moral failing. I couldn't believe it. I have been hungry my whole life, and I always thought that there was something wrong with me because of it. I never realized that I might have been hungry because my body wanted to eat food. The fuck diet also told me that I would gain weight and that it was Okay. Before reading that, I was holding onto, onto the idea that I could give myself permission to eat and still lose weight or stay the same. Reading about how gaining weight was so important because it meant coming to terms with my own inner fat phobia, and learning to love my body unconditionally was also so important. I lost my place, I'm sorry. I went through the refeeding phase and came out the other side. For a while, I kept two pints of Americone Dream in my fridge at all times. I don't know what that is, but I'm guessing it's ice cream. I needed to have the backup pint to really feel like I wouldn't run out. After a while, I stopped even remembering it was in the fridge or a freezer, I guess. Now I've moved on to chocolate haagen and I buy it in quarts rather than pints because it's a better deal and I have no more fear in connection with ice cream. I have gained weight I don't know how much, but I legitimately feel like I look great. Some of my clothes don't fit anymore, but a lot of them do. I went on my honeymoon and I wore a bikini and I was able to do all of that in my body. On my honeymoon, I was in Tanzania, I think that's how you pronounce it, and the doctor warned us not to eat any fresh foods, fruits, fresh foods. Any fresh fruits or vegetables, only well-cooked food. I dutifully complied. And then on the last day, I couldn't take it anymore. And I devoured a salad. My body craved the fresh crunch and I wanted it so badly, not because it was healthy or because my diet said to, but because I wanted it. And this is not something I could have imagined before the fuck it diet. By far the best thing that intuitive eating and the fuck it diet have given me is an awareness of how diet culture hurts, not just me, but so many people and so many people with less privilege than me. The misogynist, racist, and capitalist roots of diet culture are things I can't unsee. And now I do the fuck it diet, not just for my own peace of mind, which is amazing, she put that in parentheses, but also because I can't participate in a system that hurts so many people. I'm so grateful for the peace I've gotten and can't wait to see where this journey takes me XOXO, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel, for sending that in. If anyone else has a story they think would be inspiring and helpful to the people listening to this podcast, you can send it to podcast at carolineduner.com. I'm trying to decide whether to end this podcast episode now or to keep recording pointless rambling stuff you know what i've decided to end the podcast episode but before i end it this is what i'm going to tell you remember how in the beginning of quarantine i shared with you lovely listeners that i was obsessed with sebastian stan and i was watching all the marvel movies and sebastian stan was all i could talk about think about it was like a prime Uh, what, what do we call it? Um, dissociation tactic, really. And it was helpful, but as I knew it would, our time together has come to an end and Sebastian Stan and I, or I have decided to move on. Uh, he's dating someone new. I am looking for a new imaginary person to date and, you know, Every phase of our lives really has the opportunity to make us turn us into the people who we're meant to become. And that's what I feel about my time that I spent in my imagination with Sebastian Stan. Grateful for every moment of it and ready to move on to the next phase of my life. I just thought I should share that all with you so you heard it from me first. Uh, I will update you if I ever have another imaginary boyfriend, fiancé, slash husband, though at the rate I'm going, I only fall in love like once every decade, maybe every five years. So I'll let you know. Okay, I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye. And now it's blooper time. You are listening to the Fuck A Diet podcast, and my dog just heard her friend bark. (laughs) And now she's barking back. And this is the story of my life. Molly, please stop. Well, because this is happening, and she won't stop. She can't stop, won't stop. That's her hashtag. I'm going to get into the meat of the fuck. This is so annoying.